Some Turns of Thought in Modern Philosophy, Locke and the Frontiers of Common Sense, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Some Turns of Thought in Modern Philosophy, Five Essays by George Santiana, Essay Number 1. Locke and the Frontiers of Common Sense Paper read before the Royal Society of Literature on the occasion of the tercentenary of the birth of John Locke, with some supplementary notes. Part 1 A good portrait of Locke would require an elaborate background. His is not a figure to stand statuesquely in a void. The pose might not seem grand enough for bronze or marble. Rather, he should be painted in the manner of the Dutch masters, in a sunny interior, scrupulously finished with all the implements of domestic comfort and philosophic inquiry. The Holy Bible opened majestically before him, and beside it that other revelation, the terrestrial globe. His hand might be pointing to a microscope set for examining the internal constitution of a beetle, but for the moment his eye should be seen wandering through the open window to admire the blessings of thrift and liberty manifest in the people so worthily busy in the market-place, wrong as many a monkish notion might be that still troubled their poor heads. From them his enlarged thoughts would easily pass to the stout carved ships in the river beyond, intrepidly setting sail for the Indies or for savage America. Yes, he too had travelled, and not only in thought. He knew how many strange nations and false religions lodged in this round earth, itself but a speck in the universe. There were few ingenious authors that he had not pursued, or philosophical instruments he had not, as far as possible, examined and tested, and no man better than he could understand and prize the recent discoveries of the incomparable Mr. Newton. Nevertheless, a certain uneasiness in that spare frame, a certain knitting of the brows in that aquiline countenance, would suggest that in the midst of their earnest eloquence the philosopher's thoughts might sometimes come to a stand. Indeed, the visible scene did not exhaust the complexity of his problem, for there was also what he called the scene of ideas, immaterial and private, but often more crowded and pressing than the public scene. Locke was the father of modern psychology, and the birth of this airy monster, his half-natural changeling, was not altogether easy or fortunate. Begin note. This airy monster, this half-natural changeling. Monsters and changelings were pointed to by Locke with a certain controversial relish. They proved that nature was not compressed or compressible within Aristotelian genre and species, but was a free mechanism subject to indefinite change. Mechanism in physics is favorable to liberty in politics and morals. Each creature has a right to be what it spontaneously is, and not what some previous classification alleges that it ought to have been. The Protestant and revolutionary independence of Locke's mind here gives us a foretaste of Darwin, and even of Nietzsche. But Locke was moderate even in his radicalisms. A human nature totally fluid, 
would of itself have proved anarchical, but in order to stem that natural anarchy, it was fortunately possible to provoke the conditions of prosperity and happiness strictly laid down by the Creator. The improvidence and naughtiness of nature was called to book at every turn by the pleasures and pains divinely appendaged to things enjoined and to things forbidden, and ultimately by hell and by heaven. Yet if rewards and punishments were attached to human actions and feelings in this perfectly external and arbitrary fashion, whilst the feelings and actions spontaneous in mankind counted for nothing in the rule of morals and of wisdom, we should be living under the most cruel and artificial of tyrannies, and it would not be long before the authority of such a code would be called in question, and the reality of those arbitrary rewards and punishments would be denied, both for this world and for any other. In a truly rational morality, moral sanctions would have to vary with the variations of species, each new race or individual or mode of feeling finding its natural joy in a new way of life. The monsters would not be monsters except to rustic prejudice, and the changelings would be simply experiments in creation. The glee of Locke in seeing nature elude scholastic conventions would then lose its savour, since those staid conventions themselves would have become obsolete. Nature would henceforth present nothing but pervasive metamorphosis, irresponsible and endless. To correct the weariness of such pure flux, we might indeed invoke the idea of a progress or evolution towards something always higher and better. But this idea simply restates, under a temporal form, the dominance of a specific standard to which nature is asked to conform. Genre and species might shift and glide into one another at will, but always in the authorized direction. If, on the contrary, transformation had no predetermined direction, we should be driven back for a moral principle to each of the particular types of life generated on the way, as in estimating the correctness or beauty of language, we appeal to the speech and genius of each nation at each epoch, without imposing the grammar of one language or age upon another. It is only in so far as, in the midst of the flux, certain tropes become organized and recurrent, that any interests or beauties can be transmitted from moment to moment, or from generation to generation. Physical integration is a prerequisite to moral integrity, and unless an individual or a species is sufficiently organized and determinate to aspire to a distinguishable form of life, eschewing all others, that individual or species can bear no significant name, can achieve no progress, and can approach no beauty or perfection. Thus, so long as in a fluid world there is some measure of life and organization, monsters and changelings will always remain possible, physically and, regrettably, morally. Small deviations from the chosen type or the chosen direction of progress will continue to be called morbid and ugly, and great deviations or reversals will continue to be called monstrous. This is but the seamy side of that spontaneous predilection, grounded in our deepest nature, by which we recognize beauty and nobleness at first sight, with immense refreshment and perfect certitude. I wish my erudition allowed me to fill in this picture 
as the subject deserves, and to trace home the sources of Locke's opinions and their immense influence. Unfortunately, I can consider him, what is hardly fair, only as a pure philosopher, for had Locke's mind been more profound, it might have been less influential. He was in sympathy with the coming age, and was able to guide it, an age that confided in easy, eloquent reasoning, and proposed to be saved in this world and the next, with as little philosophy and as little religion as possible. Locke played in the eighteenth century very much the part that fell to Kant in the nineteenth. When quarrelled with, no less than when embraced, his opinions became a point of departure for universal developments. The more we look into the matter, the more we are impressed by the patriarchal dignity of Locke's mind, father of psychology, father of the criticism of knowledge, father of theoretical liberalism, godfather at least of the American political system, of Voltaire and the Encyclopedia. At home he was the ancestor of that whole school of polite, moderate opinion which can unite liberal Christianity with mechanical science and with psychological idealism. He was invincibly rooted in a prudential morality, in a rationalized Protestantism, in respect for liberty and law, above all, he was deeply convinced, as he puts it, that the handsome conveniences of life are better than nasty penury. Locke still speaks, or spoke until lately, through many a modern mind, when his mind was most sincere, and two hundred years before Queen Victoria he was a Victorian in essence. A chief element of this modernness of Locke was something that hardly appeared before any pure philosophy. Although common in religion, I mean the tendency to deny one's own presuppositions, not by accident or inadvertently, but proudly and with an air of triumph. Presuppositions are imposed on all of us by life itself. For instance, the presupposition that life is to continue and that it is worth living. Belief is born on the wing and awakes to many tacit commitments. Afterwards, in reflection, we may wonder at finding these presuppositions on our hands, and, being ignorant of the natural causes which have imposed them on the animal mind, we may be offended at them. Their arbitrary and dogmatic character will tempt us to condemn them, and to take for granted that the analysis which undermines them is justified, and will prove fruitful. But this critical assurance, in its turn, seems to rely on a dubious presupposition, namely that human opinion must always evolve in a single line, dialectically, providentially, and irresistibly. It is at least conceivable that the opposite should sometimes be the case. Some of the primitive presuppositions of human reason might have been correct and inevitable, whilst the tendency to deny them might have sprung from a plausible misunderstanding, or the exaggeration of a half-truth, so that the critical opinion itself, after destroying the spontaneous assumptions on which it rested, might be incapable of subsisting. End of note. In Locke, the central presupposition which he embraced heartily and without question were those of common sense. He adopted what he calls a plain historical method, fit, in his own words, to be brought into well-bred company and polite conversation. 
men barely by the use of their natural faculties might attain to all the knowledge possible or worth having all children he writes that are born into this world being surrounded with bodies that perpetually and diversely affect them have a variety of ideas imprinted on their minds external material things as objects of sensation and the operations of our own minds as objects of reflection are to me he continues the only originals from which all our ideas take their beginnings every act of sensation he writes elsewhere when duly considered gives us an equal view of both parts of nature the corporal and the spiritual for whilst i know by seeing or hearing that there is some corporal being without me the object of that sensation i do more certainly know that there is some spiritual being within me that sees and hears resting on these clear perceptions the natural philosophy of locke falls into two parts one strictly physical and scientific the other critical and psychological in respect to the composition of matter locke accepted the most advanced theory of his day which happened to be a very old one the theory of democritus that the material universe contains nothing but a multitude of solid atoms coursing through infinite space but locke added a religious note to this materialism by suggesting that infinite space in its subtlety must be an attribute of god he also believed what few materialists would venture to assert that if we could thoroughly examine the cosmic mechanism we should see the demonstrable necessity of every complication that ensues even of the existence and character of mind for it was no harder for god to endow matter with the power of thinking than to endow it with the power of moving in the atomic theory we have a graphic image asserted to describe accurately or even exhaustively the intrinsic constitution of things or their primary qualities perhaps in so far as physical hypothesis must remain graphic at all it is an inevitable theory it was first suggested by the wearing out and dissolution of all material objects and by the specks of dust floating in a sunbeam and it is confirmed on an enlarged scale by the stellar universe as conceived by modern astronomy when today we talk of nuclei and electrons if we imagine them at all we imagine them as atoms but it is all a picture prophesying what we might see through a sufficiently powerful microscope the important philosophical question is the one raised by the other half of locke's natural philosophy by optics and the general criticism of perception how far if at all may we trust the images in our minds to reveal the nature of external things on this point of doctrine locke through descartes was also derived from democritus it was that all the sensible qualities of things except position shape solidity number and motion were only ideas in us projected and falsely regarded as lodged in things in the things these imputed or secondary qualities were simply powers inherent in their atomic constitution and calculated to excite sensations of that character in our bodies this doctrine is readily established by locke's plain historical method when applied to the study of rainbows 
mirrors, effects of perspective, dreams, jaundice, madness, and the will to believe, all of which go to convince us that the ideas which we impulsively assume to be qualities of objects are always, in their seat and origin, evolved in our own heads. Begin note. Through Descartes. Very characteristic was the tireless polemic which Locke carried on against Descartes. The outraged plain facts had to be defended against sweeping and arbitrary theories. There were no innate ideas or maxims. Children were not born murmuring that things equal to the same thing were equal to one another, and an urchin knew that pain was caused by the parental slipper before he reflected philosophically that everything must have a cause. Again, extension was not the essence of matter, which must be solid as well, to be distinguishable from empty space. Finally, thinking was not the essence of the soul. A man without dying might lose consciousness. This often happened, or at least could not be prevented from happening, by a definition framed by a French philosopher. These protests were evidently justified by common sense, yet they missed the speculative radicalism and depth of the Cartesian doctrines, which had struck the keynotes of all modern philosophy and science, for they assumed, for the first time in history, the transcendental point of view. No wonder that Locke could not do justice to this great novelty. Descartes himself did not do so, but ignored his subjective first principles in the development of his system, and it was not until adopted by Kant, or rather by Fitch, that the transcendental method showed its true colors. Even today philosophers fumble with it, patching soliloquy with physics, and physics with soliloquy. Moreover, Locke's misunderstandings of Descartes were partially justified by the latter's verbal concessions to tradition and authority. A man who has a clear head, and like Descartes, is rendered by his aristocratic pride both courteous and disdainful, may readily conform to usage in his language, and even in his personal sentiments, without taking either too seriously. He is not struggling to free his own mind, which is free already, nor very hopeful of freeing that of most people. The innate ideas were not explicit thoughts, but categories employed unwittingly, as people, in speaking, conform to the grammar of the vernacular, without being aware that they do so. As an extension being the essence of matter, since matter existed and was a substance, it would always have been more than its essence, a sort of ether, the parts of which might move, and might have different and calculable dynamic values. The gist of this definition of matter was to clear the decks for scientific calculation, by removing from nature the moral density and moral magic with which the Socratic philosophy had encumbered it. Science would be employed in describing the movements of bodies, leaving it for the senses and feelings to appreciate the cross-lights that might be generated in the process. Though not following the technique of Descartes, the physics of our own day realizes this ideal and traces in nature a mathematical dynamism perfectly sufficient for exact provision and mechanical art. End of note. Similarly, in saying that the essence of the soul was to think, Descartes detached consciousness, 
or actual spirit from the meshes of all unknown organic or invented mental mechanisms. It was an immense clarification and liberation in its proper dimension. But this pure consciousness was not a soul. It was not the animal psyche, or principle of organization, life, and passion, a principle which, according to Descartes, was material. To have called such a material principle the soul would have shocked all Christian conceptions. But if Descartes had abstained from giving that consecrated name to mere consciousness, he need not have been wary of making the latter intermittent and effervescent, as it naturally is. He was driven to the conclusion that the soul can never stop thinking by the desire to placate orthodox opinion and his own Christian sentiments at the expense of attributing to actual consciousness a substantial independence and a directive physical force which were incongruous with it, a force and independence perfectly congruous with the platonic soul, which had been a mythological being, a supernatural spirit or demon or incubus incarnate in the natural world and partly dominating it. The relations of such a soul to the particular body or bodies which it might weave for itself on earth, to the actions which it performed through such bodies, and to the current of its own thoughts, then became questions for theology, or for a moralistic theory of the universe. They were questions remote from the preoccupations of the modern mind. Yet it was not possible either for Locke or for Descartes to clear their fresh conceptions altogether from those ancient dreams. What views precisely did Locke oppose to these radical tendencies of Descartes? In respect to the nature of matter, I have indicated above the position of Locke. Pictorially, he accepted an ordinary atomism, scientifically the physics of Newton. On the other two points, Locke's convictions were implicit rather than speculative. He resisted the Cartesian theories without much developing his own, as after all was natural in a critic engaged in proving that our natural facilities were not intended for speculation. All knowledge came from experience, and no man could know the savor of a pineapple without having tasted it. Yet this savor, according to Locke, did not reside at first in the pineapple, to be conveyed on contact to the palate and to the mind, but it was generated in the process of gustation, or perhaps we should rather say that it was generated in the mind on occasion of that process. At least then, in respect to secondary qualities, and to all moral values, the terms of human knowledge were not drawn from the objects encountered in the world, but from an innate sensibility proper to the human body or mind. Experience, if this word meant the lifelong train of ideas which made a man's moral being, was not a source of knowledge, but was knowledge, or illusion, itself, produced by organs endowed with a special native sensibility in contact with varying external stimuli. This conclusion would then not have contradicted, but exactly expressed the doctrine of innate categories. As to the soul, which might exist without thinking, Locke still called it an immaterial substance. Not so immaterial, however, as not to be conveyed bodily with him in his coach from London to Oxford. Although, like Hobbes, 
Locke believed in the power of the English language to clarify the human intellect. He here ignored the advice of Hobbes to turn that befuddled Latin phrase into plain English. Substance meant body, immaterial meant bodiless. Therefore, immaterial substance meant bodiless body. True substance had not really meant body for Aristotle or the schoolman, but who now knew or cared what anything had meant for them. Locke scornfully refused to consider what a substantial form may have signified, and in still maintaining that he had a soul, and calling it a spiritual substance, he was probably simply protesting that there was something living and watchful within his breast, the invisible moral agent in all his thoughts and actions. It was he that had them and did them, and this self of his was far from being reducible to a merely logical impersonal subject, and, I think, supposed in all thought, for what would this, I think, have become when it was not thinking? On the other hand, it mattered very little what the substance of a thinking being might be. God might even have endowed the body with the faculty of thinking and of generating ideas on occasion of certain impacts. Yet a man was a man for all that, and Locke was satisfied that he knew, at least well enough for an honest Englishman, what he was. He was what he felt himself to be, and this inner man of his was not merely the living self, throbbing now in his heart, it was all his moral past, all that he remembered it to have been. If, from moment to moment, the self was a spiritual energy, a stir within, in retrospect the living present seemed, as it were, to extend its tentacles and to communicate its subjectivity in his whole personal past. The limits of his personality were those of his memory, and his experience included everything that his living mind could appropriate and relive. In a word, he was his idea of himself, and this insight opens a new chapter, not only in his philosophy, but in the history of human self-estimation. Mankind was henceforth invited not to think of itself as a tribe of natural beings, nor of souls with a specific nature and fixed possibilities. Each man was a romantic personage or literary character, he was simply what he was thought to be, and might become anything that he could will to become. The way was open for Napoleon on one hand, and for Fitch on the other. These two parts of Locke's natural philosophy, however, are not in perfect equilibrium. All the feelings and ideas of an animal must be equally conditioned by his organs and passions, and he cannot be aware of what goes on beyond him, except as it affects his own life. How, then, could Locke, or could Democritus, suppose that his ideas of space and atoms were less human, less graphic, summary, and symbolic, than his sensations of sound or color? The language of science, no less than that of sense, should have been recognized to be a human language, and the nature of anything exists collateral with ourselves, be that collateral existence material or mental, should have been confessed to be a subject for faith and for hypothesis, never by any possibility for absolute or direct intuition. Begin note. 
all ideas must be equally conditioned. Even the mathematical ideas, which seem so exactly to describe the dynamic order of nature, are not repetitious of their natural counterpart, for mathematical form in nature is a web of diffuse relations enacted in the mind. It is a thought process, the logical synthesis of those deployed relations. To run in a circle is one thing. To conceive a circle is another. Our mind by its animal roots, which render it relevant to the realm of matter and cognitive, and by its spiritual actuality, which renders it original, synthetic, and emotional, is a language from its beginnings, almost, we might say, a biological poetry, and the greater the intellectuality and poetic abstraction, the greater the possible range. Yet we must not expect this scope of speculation in us to go with adequacy or exhaustiveness. On the contrary, mathematics and religion each in its way, so sure, leave most of the truth out. End note. There is no occasion to take alarm at this doctrine as if it condemned us to solitary confinement and to ignorance of the world in which we live. We see and know the world through our eyes and our intelligence in visual and intellectual terms. How else could a world be seen or known which is not figment of a dream, but a collateral power pressing an alien, in the cognizance which an animal may take of his surroundings, and surely all animals take such cognizance, the subjective and moral character of his feelings, or finding himself so surrounded, does not destroy their cognitive value. These feelings, as Locke says, are signs to take them for signs is the essence of intelligence, Animals that are sensitive physically are also sensitive morally, and feel the friendliness or hostility which surrounds them. Even pain and pleasure are no idle sensations satisfied with their own presence. They violently summon attention to the objects that are their source. Can love or hate be felt without being felt towards something, something near and potent, yet external, uncontrolled, and mysterious? When I dodge a missile or pick a berry, is it likely that my mind should stop to dwell on its pure sensations or ideas without recognizing or pursuing something material? Analytic reflection often ignores the essential energy of mind, which is originally more intelligent than sensuous, more appetitive and dogmatic than aesthetic. But the feelings and ideas of an active animal cannot help uniting internal moral intensity with the external physical reference, and the natural conditions of sensibility require that perceptions should owe their existence and quality to the living organism with its moral bias, and that at the same time they should be addressed to the external objects which entice the organism or threaten it. All ambitions must be defeated when they ask for the impossible. The ambition to know is not an exception, and certainly our perceptions cannot tell us how the world would look if nobody saw it, or how valuable it would be if nobody cared for it. But our perceptions, as Locke again said, are sufficient for our welfare and appropriate to our condition. They are not only a wonderful entertainment in themselves, but apart from their sensuous and grammatical quality, 
by their distribution and method of variation, they may inform us most exactly about the order and mechanism of nature. We see the science of today, how completely the most accurate knowledge, proven to be accurate by its application in the arts, may shed every pictorial element and the whole language of experience to become a pure method of calculation and control, and by a pleasant compensation or aesthetic life may become free, more self-sufficing, more humbly happy to itself, and without trespassing in any way beyond the modesty of nature, we may consent to be like little children, chirping our human note, since the life of reason in us may well become science in its validity, whilst remaining poetry in its texture. I think that by a slight rearrangement of Locke's pronouncements in natural philosophy, they could be made inwardly consistent and still faithful to the first presupposition of common sense, although certainly far more chastened and sceptical than impulsive opinion is likely to be in the first instance. There are other presuppositions in the philosophy of Locke, beside his fundamental naturalism, and in his private mind probably the most important was his Christian faith, which was not only confident and sincere, but prompted him at times to high speculation. He had friends among the Cambridge Platonists, and he found in Newton a brilliant example of scientific rigor, capped with mystical insight. Yet if we consider Locke's philosophical position in the abstract, his Christianity almost disappears. In form, his theology and ethics were strictly rationalistic. Yet one who was a deist in philosophy might remain a Christian in religion. There was no great harm in a special revelation, provided it were simple and short, and left the broad field of truth open in almost every direction to free and personal investigation. A free man and a good man would certainly never admit as coming from God any doctrine contrary to his private reason or political interests, and the moral precepts actually vouchsafed to us in the Gospels were most acceptable, seeing that they added a sublime eloquence to maxims which sound reason would have arrived at in any case. Evidently, common sense had nothing to fear from the religious faith of this character, but the matter could not end there. Common sense is not more convinced of anything than of the difference between good and evil, advantage and disaster, and it cannot dispense with a moral interpretation of the universe. Socrates, who spoke initially for the common sense, even thought the moral interpretation of existence the whole of philosophy. He would not have seen anything comic in the satire of Moliere making his chorus of young doctors chant in unison that opium causes sleep because it has a dormitive virtue. The virtues of moral uses of things, according to Socrates, were the reasons why the things had been created and were what they were. The admirable virtues of opium defined its perfection, and the perfection of a thing was the full manifestation of its deepest nature. Doubtless this moral interpretation of the universe had been overdone, and it had been a capital error in Socrates to make the interpretations exclusive, and to substitute it for natural philosophy. Locke, who was himself a medical man, knew what a black cloak for ignorance and villainy scholastic verbiage might be in that profession. 
He also knew, being an enthusiast for experimental science, that in order to control the movement of matter, which is to release those virtues and perfections, it is better to trace the movement of matter materialistically, for it is in the act of manifesting its own powers, and not, as Socrates and the scholastics fancied, by obeying a foreign magic, that matter sometimes assumes or restores the forms so precious to the healer's or the moralist's eyes. At the same time, the manner in which the moral world rests upon the natural, though divined, perhaps, by a few philosophers, has not been generally understood, and Locke, whose broad humanity would not exclude the moral interpretations of nature, was driven in the end to the view of Socrates. He seriously invoked the Socratic maxim that nothing can produce that which it does not contain. For this reason, the unconscious, after all, could never have given rise to consciousness. Observation and experiment could not be allowed to decide this point. The moral interpretations of things, because more deeply rooted in human experience, must envelop the physical interpretations and must have the last word. End of essay number one, part one.